This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a ministry-focused insurance provider serving Christian churches, schools, and related ministries. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. Super Tuesday is upon us. After a primary here and a caucus there, Tuesday is when the greatest number of U.S. states hold primary elections in caucuses. More delegates to the presidential nominating conventions can be won on Super Tuesday than on any other single day. As the Democratic field narrows down, what type of successes have candidates had in reaching out to Christians? Obviously, abortion is an enormous concern for many white evangelicals, but are religious liberty concerns at the same level? And while black Christians may be far more likely to vote Democrat, they do have had frustrations with their community's ability to speak into the party platform. We wanted to discuss the efforts that the Democratic field has made to reach religious voters, if the white evangelical vote is something that Democrats could ever reach, and how our two-party system affects all of this. Today is March 2nd, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Tim Dowrymple, president and CEO of Christianity Today. All right, Tim, I know that you have been just immersed in election coverage. Just kidding. You've been doing a bunch of different traveling around, but I know you've probably been paying some attention to what's happening in the field. And I would just love to get a gut check from you about the ways that you've seen candidates engage faith issues and if anything's resonated or kind of turned you off. Yeah, well, so as you allude, Morgan, I, uh, I've i been literally on the other side of the planet for the last couple of weeks. CT is doing a lot to expand its global storytelling infrastructure. And so I was with a director of CT Global, Jeremy Weber, in Indonesia, and we went, actually had an amazing opportunity to go into the interior of Papua and see what different uh, ministries are doing there. And we also spent a little time in Singapore before coming home. And so American... Electoral realities have been low on my list of things I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. But then, of course, I come back and there's another Democratic debate. You know, we, we see Bernie Sanders leading the pack, and that raises a lot of questions about the future of the Democratic Party. You know, I approach this with a supposition that neither party has a monopoly on good ideas and good intentions. And I, I want both parties to, to flourish and to do well so that we can have meaningful participants on both sides of the aisle. So I've always, you know, tended to line up on the conservative side of things, but I want a faithful opposition. I I want both the left and the right to be sensitive to Christian concerns and shaped by Christian concerns. I think we're better off as a country if that's the case. Not surprisingly, a lot of what I think about politics has been through what we've been publishing And I thought I would just draw attention to the fact that this, again, has been a place where we've heard a lot of candidates quote from Scripture. And if people didn't get a chance to read it already, we have a great piece that came out last year called The Democratic Candidate's Favorite Bible Verses. And I thought it was just a really fun look at the types of passages that people routinely turn to. And I also saw a tweet, I believe, from Heath Carter last night that was just asking if Matthew 25 has become kind of the Christian left's key Bible verse to turn to um, when they're making the case for something that involves helping people who might need health care or student loans, though I don't think Bernie Sanders has used that in an argument for that. But it does seem like, once again, we're seeing the place of Scripture a lot, which to me, I would say it's interesting because I don't necessarily would say that quoting Scripture is outreach to people who are Christians in an explicit way, but it is interesting that that is continued to place that people will cite and make their appeals from that. All right. Well, we have two folks here to talk to us today about all of these types of things. Do you want to introduce them, Tim? I met Justin Gibney when I was living down in Atlanta. Justin had worked in the office of Mayor Kasim Reed and was involved in and advising leading a number of different political campaigns. He's the co-founder and president of the AND campaign. Justin Gibney is an attorney and political strategist who still lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Michael Beer is chief strategist for the AND campaign. Michael was involved in the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives for the Obama administration and was responsible in particular for evangelical outreach, and that was the context in which I, I met Michael. 
Michael then led religious outreach for the 2012 campaign, the ultimately successful Obama uh, campaign in 2012 for re-election. Michael is the author of Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America, and the author also of a, of a study that was just released that Michael will be welcome to tell us about in due course. But welcome, Justin, and welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be with you. Justin, both of you are involved with the AND campaign. And since you're one of the founders, why don't I invite you to tell our listeners about the AND campaign so they have a sense of of where your heart is when it comes to political polarization and faith. Yeah, sure. So the AND campaign is really trying to help Christians engage politics more faithfully. It's a response to what we saw as really a false dichotomy in our political landscape, where it seems that we almost split the gospel, right? We have social justice, we have progressive and, and, you know, progressives are about social justice. And you know, on the other side, we have Republicans or, or conservatives, and they're about more order. A lot of Christians felt uncomfortable because folks who were on the right sometimes felt like, well, man, I feel like I'm compromising my, uh, you know, my compassion or neglecting my compassion. And then folks on the right kind of felt like Christians on the right felt, I mean, on the left, excuse me, felt like they were surrendering many of their convictions just to really be a part of more progressive politics. And when we looked at the gospel, we looked at Jesus' walk, what we saw was we saw justice and moral order. Uh, we saw love and truth. Specifically, if you go to Ephesians 4, 15, Paul is telling the church of Ephesus that we should, mature Christians should always be able to speak the truth in love. And we didn't think that applied just to our personal relationships. We thought that applied to our public witness. And so we wanted to get rid of this false dichotomy that says that you have to either choose truth or choose love, that you have to either choose justice or choose more order. We felt that Christians couldn't make that decision at all, that we could choose a political party, but we could not choose between love and truth, that we had to embrace both if we were going to be faithful and then engage the process from there. And so that's what the AND campaign is about. We're trying to raise civic literacy among Christians, help Christians apply their values values to the issues of the day. Now, we provide a framework, and that framework doesn't mean that we're going to agree on every single issue. So Christians can still disagree on several issues. You know, we may disagree on the marginal tax rate, but in general, we should be a lot closer on on some very important issues if we're using that biblical framework. And that's what the AND campaign is trying trying to bring. So a lot of education, making sure that we're representing, writing articles, you know, in, in mainstream media and all that, so that we're representing this point of view that you just don't see too often. It's all it's usually either all the way to the left or all the way to the right. And then giving Christians opportunities to have on-ramps for advocacy, right, to really get in the game. A lot of Christians want to make a change. They just don't know where to start. They don't necessarily want to join a, a secular organization sometimes because, you know, they think that could, you know, pull them in a, in a direction that they don't want to go. And so we want to provide them with that opportunity. Great. Thank you. I want to start with a first question. Now, I know neither of you are historians uh, by training, but both of you have been in the space of faith and politics for a long time. You've done a great deal of reading and thinking over these things. So we have a situation today, and this is some of the predicate for this episode, where white evangelicals tend to vote overwhelmingly Republican. African-American Christians tend to vote overwhelmingly Democrat. Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans fall somewhere in between. But I would love to get just kind of your nutshell historical perspective on how did we get to a situation where white Christians, in particular white evangelicals, vote one way to such an extent, and then where African-American Christians, including African-American evangelicals, vote the other way to such an extent. Just kind of how do you see that unfolding to get to the point where we are today? Yeah, I think I think it goes back to really the civil rights movement to some extent. Uh, when you look at Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy and the things that he did in regard to civil rights then being followed up by LBJ, I think that endeared a lot of African-Americans to the Democratic Party. Also, uh, around that time, you see the Dixocrats go over to uh, the Republican Party. Uh, it happened a little later, but, but that's part of it, too. And so I think really for a lot of African-Americans, which I always want to point out that it's not a monolith, even when you're talking about African-American Christians, I think you look back to civil rights, you look how the Democratic Party handled those things, and you look how Republicans have handled them, and just racial injustice in general, and that kind of is what kind of placed us on the side of the Democratic Party. Not to say that those other issues don't matter, but in many instances, the consequences of civil rights seem to be more immediate. I think that's right. I think there's a, a obviously a, a, a story that's intertwined with all of this, with all of what Justin mentioned about 
sort of the rise of the religious right and the relationship that the religious right formed with the Republican Party in the late 70s and then especially in the 80s and 90s that is not separate from the civil rights movement and the story of the 60s and 70s. And then we have a we have a two party, really a coalition based party system. And so once these kinds of fractures happen, uh, it becomes self-reinforcing and the parties make decisions, emphasize who's already part of their party, which then makes it uh, so that the parties are increasingly more attractive to to those who are already there and in some ways less able to do uh, outreach. And obviously, sometimes that's shaken up. We go through periods of realignment. The, the basic facts that you laid out, Tim, have, have been pretty, pretty consistent over the last 30, 40 years. So you would you guys would say that within the last 30 or 40 years, there's not really been a time then where Democrats have had an opportunity, at least on a federal level, to win the white evangelical vote and that Republicans have not had the opportunity or I don't know, maybe you could say interest too, in trying to reach the black Christian vote. I don't know if it's a matter of opportunity. Just think based on who their bases were, neither thought that it was worth their time to do so. Right? I mean, from what I can tell, I, I just think they've said, hey, we have our base. We can speak to that base. And it would probably just take too much if we're if they're even interested reaching, you know, those other demographics. So the difference between, for instance, you know, Barack Obama's numbers among white evangelicals and Hillary Clinton's is a matter of millions of votes, uh, about four million votes nationally, four million more evangelicals and about 10 percentage points voted for Barack Obama in 2008 over Hillary in 2016. Of course, George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004 with talk of compassionate conservatism with the the faith-based office put some additional effort that that we haven't seen from other Republican candidates into reaching African-Americans. And it's important, you know, we're talking about 10 percentage points. Uh, but when you're talking on a national level, you know, it's it's significant. It, it's what can swing states. But Morgan, the, the basic infrastructure, like the the, the, the basic contours have, have been about the same for the last, last 30, 40 years. In, in other words, like Democrats are not when they are going after white evangelical votes. They're not doing so with the idea that they could win the white evangelical vote, but make the margins tighter and the, and the same when Republicans are are reaching out to African-Americans. You know, I found some information on the, on the vote in Alabama a few years back where Roy Moore was on one side and then Doug Jones was on the other. White evangelicals voted at a percentage of 80% or higher for Roy Moore, who had a, a very sort of troubled history. And it looks as though about 96% of African-American Christians, or this uh, article in the Washington Post defines them as black evangelicals, voted for Doug Jones. And it's just, it is striking, right, that black evangelicals and white evangelicals who have so many things in common, who would agree on so many things theologically and so many things ethically and morally, would be so incredibly divided when it comes to political positions. And that's obviously part of what we're here to to dive into. And, and in particular, as we're going through, there's no primary on the Republican side, but there is a primary on the Democratic side. And understand what is kind of the history of the relationship between the Democratic Party and Christians, black and white. It is just, uh, there are historical reasons that you note, but looking forward to diving into some of the more political policy oriented reasons as well. Obviously, abortion is something that gets discussed a lot when it comes to doing religious outreach from Democrats to white evangelicals. But I'm curious if we could maybe talk about some of the comments that Democratic candidates have made in the past regarding maybe religious freedom matters or in the case of Bloomberg, some of his decisions around schools. And I think it'd just be helpful to give people a sense of maybe other areas where trust has eroded between these two groups. Yeah, so... As you know, there are a lot of there's a and I don't have the exact numbers. Michael may have may have a better understanding of that. But there are a lot of Christians who are pro-life in the Democratic Party. I mean, there's a, there's a critical mass. So when you get I think you're referring to when Bernie Sanders said basically to be a Democrat is to be pro-choice, that you can't be pro-life and be in the Democratic Party. And I think that was just somewhat an ignorant statement. He may know better. I would hope that he knows better. But to say that was just inaccurate. But at the end of the day, he said it all to me, you know, when, when people make statements like that, it's, it's a calculation. So most of these folks who are putting statements out there, 
they're calculating, okay, what's going to, you know, what am I going to get a bounce for this? Am I going to get a lot of support for this? Or am I going to get pushback? And the Christians who are in the, and the folks who are in the Democratic Party who are pro-life need to change that calculus. We, we probably need to speak up more and and, uh, and shout it out. I mean, we do have people out there who are doing that, but folks don't make statements like that when people are vocal. And so one of the things that the AND campaign is trying to do is galvanize Christians on both sides to be more vocal about the issue, but then talk about the issue differently as well. So, yeah, I just think it was an inaccurate statement. He made a political calculation and, you know, he didn't he got some pushback, but it certainly could have been quite a bit more. There's a lot that we could talk about here, in addition to some of the issues, the specific issues you mentioned. There's been this Pew question, Pew Research Center question about, do you view the Democratic Party as friendly to religion? And that is a poll that particularly in the 21st century, Democrats have have not done very well on. And so in addition to sort of policy questions, there is a a tonal, just just a a makeup and presentational and a a cultural aspect to this as, as well, in addition to the very, very real substantive issues. And, and then, you know, I, I do want to say, you know, going back to the previous question, which is, you know, when we talk about uh, Democrats having a hard time reaching white evangelicals, that that's also because white evangelicals have a very particular kind of makeup and profile when it comes to the issues that they care about and are concerned about that, as, as Tim mentioned, are different than those of many other Christians. And it's not just abortion. There have been, well, on average among white evangelicals, abortion is about, it's about seven in the, the list of issue priorities, things like economics, things like uh, national security typically rank higher than abortion. So just a lack of awareness of the, the breadth of the public their Democrats are often think they're talking about when they talk about religion and specific specifically issues like religious freedom or abortion and the sort of ignorance that they're actually talking about more than white evangelicals when they talk about the, these things, that they're actually talking about a pretty great swath of, of Christians from various racial, denominational uh, backgrounds. Uh, I'm not sure Democrats understood that there are churches across the country who are there are using public schools for their church services on on Sunday and the the kind of message that such a political move would send cultural instincts that that lead to the kind of disconnect between the Democratic Party and and many white evangelical voters Michael, I would love to hear from you about your experience in the first term of the Obama administration and then in the uh, campaign for the for his second term as you did, evangelical outreach on behalf of the Obama administration and campaign, what were some of the most significant obstacles that you encountered in building, in in particular, support amongst white evangelicals? There are two very different jobs. So obviously, when I was on the campaign, it's very clear campaigns have one mission and it's to get elected. And so my job was to make the best case I could for the, the president and get votes, uh, earn earn support. In the White House, it was very different. And a lot of my work with not just evangelicals, but as you said, I worked with various religious communities in the country. But when it comes to evangelicals, we actually made an intentional effort. Seeing how faith outreach had been done in previous White Houses, we made an intentional effort to go to those who were actually doing the work, those who are maybe less political and going to offer a whole ton of political benefit, but maybe they were they were working on international development issues or working on anti-human trafficking efforts. And so that's what a lot of my work was, making sure that evangelicals and, and Christian institutions that were serving the country through the work that they did were connected with the federal government connected with other actors in their in their space and able to share best practices i did have a a policy role and an outreach role in making sure that evangelical voices were represented and other religious voices were represented in policy discussions and obviously sometimes the outcome of those policy decisions were were what folks were looking for, and, and other other times they they weren't. But we 
tried to make sure that, that folks had a seat at the table and an ability to, to make their case. So all that to say, when it came to the work I was doing in the White House, the, the biggest hurdle was just sometimes, especially if we were working with very conservative organizations, they would have donors that would be nervous about, you know, why are you working with a Democratic administration, that kind of thing. That could usually be overcome. It was more about making sure that our partnerships were actually focused on getting good work done. And when, when when that happened, we were able to do a lot. We were able to work with Focus on the Family, on fatherhood programs. We were able to work with, and on adoption, I should say, uh, we were able to work with Myriad, IJM, A21, on human trafficking. We were, we were able to form partnerships. We just tried to take politics and especially electoral politics sort of, sort of off the table. So that was a good summary of kind of how you would make the case, how you kind of built rapport with evangelical organizations and audiences over the course of the administration and the campaign. But I I would love to know some about the obstacles. And so as you were trying to build popular support for President Obama, first candidate Obama, amongst, let's say, white evangelicals in particular, some some of the objections that would we would all assume you would hear would be around matters of abortion or kind of a certain vision of sexuality and family. So I guess part of what I'm asking is what were some of the the main objections that you had to deal with that may go beyond just abortion and same-sex marriage into to deeper issues or other policy issues that we can kind of get those on the table for this discussion? There's a, a real difference between the, the White House and, and the campaign role. A few things that came up in, in, in both would certainly be, you know, the, the issue of the contraception mandate was a huge policy issue. I, I write about it significantly in my book, and that was something that really colored faith outreach from 2010 on. The, the, the administration made a number of steps early on that received very little pushback, not just sort of the anti-bullying initiative, but also public Christian pushback, getting rid of the don't ask, don't tell, even having the DOJ argue against the Defensive Marriage Act. You did not see major sort of public pushback from Christian institutions, which sort of, as I argue in my book, gave the impression, I think, to some in the Democratic Party that they could go further quicker than they thought they could uh, on issues involving same-sex marriage and the LGBT community. So it was actually surprising to me being in the White House at the time to not have much I could point to in terms of a good faith, vibrant criticism that was that was engaging, and I've talked to a number of advocates around around this question and, and trying to trying to figure out sort of where where folks were establishment Christian institutions that were not specifically focused on those issues. There just wasn't a whole lot of input, but certainly you know LGBT and religious freedom issues played a role. Michelle Margolis, who's a professor at UPenn has a book from politics to the pews that came out in the last year or so. It's even more of a certainty now than it was. I think we just, I think we were earlier in sort of politics driving religious views as opposed to religious views driving politics uh, in 2008, 2009, 2010 when I was serving. Now we're really, uh, the social science really backs up at this point. The fact that a lot of the concerns of white evangelicals are driven by sort of partisan priorities and sort of what they see on cable news and talk radio that's supposed to sort of be on their side. And so often when you're dealing with constituencies, you know, it was things like a tax rate. It would be things like, uh, what are you doing to prevent illegal immigration? What, what were you doing to on national security issues that sometimes weren't even framed as religious issues. And, and to Justin's point, we're, we're more connected, a sort of secular ideological, you know, rationales. Justin, I'd be curious to hear from you about the extent that you feel that Democrats make an intentional effort to court the black vote or the black Christian vote in this instance versus take it for granted. 
they make an effort to court the black vote. I mean, if you watch the debates, it's 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 clear that at least rhetorically, they they've gotten the message that that's something that they need to talk about and and kind of have a deeper understanding of the issues that are going on in the black community. So there's there's a value to that. As far as black Christians, I do somewhat, you know, whereas the Republican Party doesn't seem to make any effort at all, I do think that the Democrat Party takes the African American the the black Christian vote somewhat for granted, just in that you don't see a whole lot. I mean, they do attend churches, so I think they know where the, the vote's at. But when you look at policy, so I, I like to talk about policy. I mean, you have rhetoric, you have all these other things, but at the end of the day, what does the policy look like? And when I look at a policy like the Equality Act, which you know almost every Democrat in the House voted for and every candidate uh, running for president is, is supporting, I look at that and say, how serious are you taking this constituency? How much do you think you can get away with before you know people step up and say, this isn't right? A policy here that has no consideration for the church whatsoever. Democratic Party, in some to some extent, has benefited from there just not being a lot of information about the Equality Act. I think it's taken for granted to some extent, but but just like I think there's some constituencies who may care, you know, who are in the middle, who may care more about immigration and how immigrants are treated on the Republican side until the folks who are, you know, who aren't as far to the left or the right in both parties start speaking up, then it's kind of on, you know, it's kind of on them, right? You Again, these are political calculations. And until people start putting pressure, then those calculations don't change. But certainly the Democratic Party could do more, especially when it comes to policy, to show that they are taking these vote, you know, have these voters in mind and that they're not taking them for granted. But then again, they probably don't feel like they have to do all that much, because when you look at the Republican side of the aisle, you don't see them doing anything. So that gives them somewhat not a complete pass, but somewhat more uh, room to do what they would, would like to do. So now would one of you be able to give a brief summary of the objectives of the Equality Act and then the ways that you see this being at odds with the aims of conservative Christians? So the Equality Act, basically what it does is it it puts sexuality and gender identity on the same level. Uh, it puts it in the, the Civil Rights Act. And so it would be it makes on it the, a protected status. It makes it a protected status. And so it would be on the same level as, as race. Therefore, you know, a school that had a sexual ethic would be considered discriminating if they were to enforce that sexual ethic. And, and the same would go for, you know, maybe a hospital that doesn't want to do a certain surgery. Right. Some some kind of surgery dealing with uh, transgenderism or something like that because they don't think it's healthy, then they could be held liable. And so really what the Equality Act would do for uh, to a lot of faith based organizations is it would put them in this place where they're just really exposed to a whole lot of litigation that could very much, you know, very easily cause them to close their doors. It's it's something that every Christian should be concerned about, should take the time to read. It's already gotten through the House, obviously not not through the Senate, but it's something that's, that's serious, has real, real consequences for faith-based organizations. Are there issues then that you think would, I don't know what the right word is, encourage Black Christians to stay home or, I don't know, potentially vote Republican? I'm just wondering what, what might cause them to not participate as fully in the party. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I do believe that if the Equality Act ends up having the impact that it could, if it has some of the consequences that it could have if it's ever passed, then you do have an issue. But more of this, like I said before, a lot of this is just on the Republican side of the aisle. Until Republicans start seriously dealing with racial injustice, taking an honest look at things like voter rights, there's not going to be much movement. I mean, why, why would someone go over and support another party where it's not very clear whether they want you to vote or not? I mean, if you look at what happened in Florida, where there was a, a very clear attempt to strip felons of the right to vote after they had just gained that right and the people had voted on it. Uh, when things like that happen, you know, I can disagree with the Democrats all day. But if it doesn't seem like the other side wants me to participate, well, there's not going to be much of a, a challenge there. I just want to follow up on that one more with another question. Justin, what would you say then are like the most important political priorities for black Christians then? So, for instance, last time I went and I spoke to the uh, concerned black clergy here in Atlanta. I said, you know, what's the main issue that makes you not even consider, you know, even kind of working with conservatives on, on certain things or even consider the Republican Party? And the number one issue they brought up was voter rights. To say, again, like I said before, if somebody doesn't want you to participate in the process, then why would you consider kind of handing over your political capital? That's the number one issue they talk about. But I think just like everyone else, healthcare is a big, a big deal. Folks want jobs. Those are kind of the focuses of the black community in general. Uh, and that's not to say that they don't care about religious liberty, that they don't care about the right to life and things of that matter. But some of these other issues seem more immediate, right? Rather being able to say what other people can and can't do. 
sometimes you're just like, hey, I want to make sure that my community can actually participate, actually has the resources that it needs, sometimes as a means of survival. And so those are sometimes more immediate or pressing issues in my, in my community. Yeah, I'd love to follow up on that. So there's a, there's a deep concern with, with voter rights amongst African-Americans, and that makes a great deal of sense. And, and I hear you saying that until Republicans show a genuine concern for greater access to the vote for African-Americans, for people of color, that there's not a whole lot of opportunity for Republicans. There was something that came up in one of the earlier debates on the Democratic primary side, Beto O'Rourke where he kind of briefly floated the possibility of ending the tax exemption for churches, for congregations. And this has become something that's kind of been waved around on the right. And honestly, in some of the response to the Mark Galley editorial that was published around Christmas time, people have really emphasized dangers to religious liberties, right? So on the, on the one hand, it seems as though African-American congregations particularly worry about voter rights and white evangelical congregations are particularly concerned about religious liberties. Not to say that it's monolithic on either side. I'm sure it's mixed as well. But, but I, I wonder how, how realistic is that? So Beto fairly quickly was run out. Well, he was condemned for those sorts of comments. A lot of people disagreed with him, even on the left. And then he was kind of out of the, the primary campaign. But it struck me that, man, I, I think if, if anybody was really pushing that hard on the Democratic side, man, the Democrats could lose the black church as well. So how realistic do you think is, is a concern uh, about the loss of tax exemption status for churches? And would that be damaging both on the left and the right? Oh, I think it'd be seriously damaging to the Democratic Party, for sure. And that's why you saw the pushback. I'm not even sure that a lot of people that in the party that were pushing back up against Beto disagreed with his rationale. They were just a little more savvy than to say something that, that they know would have a probably devastating impact. So, Michael, you just wrote something for us on church tax exemption. And so I'd love to invite you to comment on that as well. Number one, how realistic is it, you think, that that, that tax exemption could actually come under threat? And maybe number two, what, what might the consequences be if that became a, a serious policy position of the Democratic Party? First, it's, it's not the tip of the spear, Tim. In, in other words, churches losing their tax exempt status there's a significant sort of uh, case law around this. It invokes constitutional questions that most folks think err on the side of churches maintaining their tax exempt status, especially if the revoking their tax exempt status is retribution for policy view that they have. So it's really not a reasonable reasonable concern to have that churches will lose their tax exempt status. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Baylor University's Truett Seminary, where kingdom-minded women and men are equipped to follow their callings. I spoke with Matt Hawmeyer about how Truett Seminary seeks to support its students, even when they're off campus. Seminaries are are equipped and well-equipped to train ministers. I mean, that's what we do well. There's just no reason in our world today that should stop at graduation. Most of what I do, I would say, boils down to supporting, equipping, encouraging pastors and their churches, whether that is churches in transition, pastors in transition. Um, Again, what we're doing right now is leadership huddles for um, students serving in ministry for ministers in their first five years post-seminary. And then we'll plan events um, that help our pastors face some of the big challenges of the day that ministry presents. By learning to think theologically, developing ministry skills, cultivating a community of support, and engaging in spiritual formation, Truist students are uniquely prepared to make an impact in the church and the world. Learn more at baylor.edu slash Truitt. So I wanted to talk about the front runner right now, Bernie Sanders, and specifically a particular incident that happened a couple years ago. And I thought I would just briefly summarize what happened here. So Senator Sanders was basically questioning one of Donald Trump's appointees about his Christian convictions. He was looking at this idea of the idea that salvation only comes through Christ. And so I'm just going to read something that Sanders said here. He said, I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple million. Are you suggesting that all of these people stand condemned? What about Jews? Do they stand condemned too? I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people of different religions in this country and around the world. 
near judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? So he said this again when one of Donald Trump's nominees was just being questioned. I I would be curious from hearing from you guys what you felt about that particular incident when that happened and what kind of understanding it seems that Sanders has about faith. He is a secular Jew, just for anyone who does not know that. One of the folks who sort of sounded alarms on, on this when it when it happened, there, there are two conversations. One, there's an internal sort of church conversation. So Russ Vaught, who was the appointee, he wrote this post. He's someone who clearly had aspirations and currently is serving in the role for public service. He wrote this post for the conservative web, website, The Resurgent. He wrote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. The, the, the post was it was basically about that and, and quite a bit about his, his thoughts on that. I, I think there's, there's an internal conversation to be had that, hey, you know, if you're going to be sitting in front of a, a Senate committee, maybe, maybe writing a post that folks you're going to be represent, representing as a public servant stand condemned, like, you're going to have to explain that to people who don't understand Christian language. And if you're looking to enter into public service, that's that's important. Then there's a conversation I'd have with someone like Bernie, and it's a conversation that I did have with, with folks associated, which is that this was one of the clearest examples of a religious test specifically outlawed in the Constitution that we've seen. Bernie did not ask this nominee if he thought that Muslims should be discriminated against in federal programs, he did not ask a policy question. He grilled this Trump administration appointee on his theology, which should just be off off limit. The other piece of this, which we've talked about quite a bit in this interview, is you get the sense that Democrats feel like it's okay, politically okay, to sort of get a few headlines, you know, be able to have the Freedom From Religion Foundation, you know, send out a press release and get some kudos with the base for grilling a Trump nominee on on these beliefs, because they think that only Republican, white, conservative evangelicals believe in the exclusive claim of Christ. And it's the kind of thing that Democrats need to understand that other Christians, Christians in the Democratic Party see this, know exactly what's going on, are, are understand that they're implicated in these kinds of critiques as, as well. So we have a piece in our March 2020 issue that I just want to flag and highlight for people that they might find interesting. It's called Democratic Christians Weigh Their Primary Concerns. Presidential contenders are wooing religious voters. How do the faithful make sure God isn't a political prop? I think people would enjoy reading that piece if you're enjoying listening to this podcast. With that in mind, I'm just curious, um, which current candidates would you guys say have made the greatest effort to connect with religious voters? And what are the type of religious voters that they have reached out to? It's not saying much using this standard, but there is much more happening in this Democratic primary when it comes to religious voters than in 2016. And that is happening both rhetorically, institutionally, and on a policy basis. Rhetorically, we're just hearing a lot more about faith in this primary than we've heard in a while, not just in 2016. Now, uh, I, I've observed that a lot of the faith rhetoric is not necessarily about the value that faith brings to the public square, about the importance of religious institutions, like it has been in previous cycles. But a lot of the faith rhetoric in the Democratic primary this time around is personal, is a citing of scripture to support certain uh, policy views and initiatives. I, I think that the clear sort of leader in terms of the, the quantity and how much he's talking about faith is is Pete Buttigieg, who has just been talking about faith. You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren is someone who, who talks about faith quite a bit. Cory Booker is is not in the race anymore, but he's someone with a with a history of, of faith rhetoric. And so we've just seen a lot more of that than we have in the past. Institutionally, you have campaigns that are already staffed up when it comes to faith outreach that, again, we didn't have at this time in 2016. So Pete Buttigieg has a national faith outreach person. The, the Biden campaign has several faith outreach staffers and then staffers in senior positions that have done faith outreach in the past. Elizabeth Warren 
Andrew Yang, who's now dropped out, but, but they have faith, faith outreach folks. And so institutionally, we're seeing play a more significant role. Michael, what about Michael Bloomberg? I've obviously his campaign. It's a it's a recent entry, but has entered with such uh, such force is suddenly everywhere. So uh, as somebody who watches this more closely than I do, what have you seen coming out of the uh, Bloomberg campaign? He has a lot of money to spend. He's already spent about 400, 500 million uh, of it from from reports I've seen. He has something for everyone in terms of at least what his infrastructure is able to offer. So he has a, that I'm aware of, two faith outreach staffers, one of whom is Adam Phillips, who is someone who spent quite a a significant deal of his time doing evangelical outreach, including a stint with the One Campaign. Bloomberg's been meeting with clergy, including a clergy meeting with a pretty diverse group of, of black clergy to discuss his stop and frisk policies and to ask for support uh, in his campaign. Bloomberg has been, uh, again, he's a late entry. He's only been in the race for about 10, 12 weeks, but he's staffed up as well and is, you know, doing the kinds of church visits that that we've, that other candidates are doing as well. Yeah. yeah and I was just, just from on the ground, I was recently at a community event and uh, a lot of the guys that I use, usually do work for me on my campaigns, whether it's doing field stuff, going to churches on Sundays and, you know, doing the flyers and all that stuff. Almost all of them were working for Bloomberg. Uh, it, it was really surprising to me. Whoa. So <laughs> I mean, we're talking about guys who are, who are sometimes rivals, <laughs> right? But he was—he was—he's paying so much more. They—they they thought it was the, you know, the the way to go for them. And so, yeah, he's definitely making some moves on the ground, touching some grassroots people, and uh, getting them on on the team. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, let me ask a final question here, and this will be an invitation in some ways to summarize some of the things that you've said. But let's try to to do it in kind of a bullet point manner. If you were advising the Democratic candidate, how would you encourage him or her to build inroads with white Christians? And then if you were advising the GOP candidate, how would you encourage him to build inroads with the African-American church as well as other minority communities that may be skeptical? For a Democratic president, I would probably say you're going to have to get control of the party and and moderate on on things like uh, abortion, be more responsible and be more sensible when it comes to religious liberty. Have a conversation about it. Understand what pluralism really is. I, I said it before, but sometimes on the left, it seems like pluralism is just like a different flavors of progressivism, but that's not really what it should be. And so, yeah, that would might be my advice on that end to a Republican president. I would say build relationships. There's nothing better than actually showing that you care, building relationships and having conversations to find out what the people in a certain community really want and really need. I think sometimes we kind of get away with photo ops and all that stuff, but there's nothing bigger than building a relationship and being present. That's that's a good place to start. And Michael, before you give your answer, let me uh, tee it up for you that I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your recent study that just came out and then kind of use that as a springboard to offer your advice to candidates on the left and the right. This report is actually really relevant to to the question. So just last week, in partnership with the Trinity Forum and with the support of the Democracy Fund, my co-author, Amy Black, who's renowned and much-loved professor at Wheaton College, and I, we we co-authored a report with the title, Christianity, Pluralism, and Public Life in the United States, Insights from Christian Leaders. It's a report that is based on in-depth interviews with more than 50 Christian leaders around the country, including uh, you, Tim, and 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 many others. Uh, and, the rest of them uh, were what, leaders. You're, yeah, yeah, saying. right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I encourage people to read the full report at ttf.org backslash reports. One of the main ways it's relevant uh, here, and I think it's relevant to to both your questions. Report lays out a case for the for the positive role. And the positive contributions that Christianity has to offer in a pluralistic America, both America's pluralistic present and its pluralistic future. That's something that we could use more of in our politics now. Candidates and and elected leaders who are willing and able to invite people into their vision and to, to say that you can be who you are. You can thrive and flourish, you, you know, in in an America that that where I'm serving as president or where I'm an elected leader, and these are the 
the areas where I think, you know, we could work together. The, this is where I need you. This is, this is where you could serve. I think that that invitation, that call in, that idea that you have a place in the American family and that you're a, a treasured part of America is something that I think folks on both sides of the aisle feel like the other political party doesn't have. It's not just, we're, we're not just in a political moment where you think the other party has some policy disagreements with you. You think that the, the other party wants you dead, so, sometimes literally, <laughs> uh, that, that, that the other party doesn't want you to be a part of America, to, to have a, a role in this country. If there's a community that you can't go into with your basic message for the country, that's a good sign that you, you probably aren't worthy of the elected office you're seeking. And so whoever the Democratic nominee is, they better be able to give a positive message and sincerely ask for the votes of white evangelicals. We have a, a track record with President Trump, but but any any Republican ought to be able to give a sincere message to, to black Christians as well. Well, thank you, everyone, for this discussion that we've had. If people have feedback, they can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. People are also welcome to tweet at us. We're at CT Podcast. We also did an episode, episode 135, called Why Latino Evangelicals Vote Beyond Immigration. I know we really didn't talk about Latinos that much on this episode, and that episode really did a great job of nuancing that whole conversation about what some of their political priorities are. So if you have questions about that, I think you guys would enjoy that episode as well. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Justin, do you want to go first? Sure. I think something that brought me joy is I was at Point University in um, West Point, Georgia uh, last week. And just kind of given the, the framework of the AN campaign, uh, you know, it's a school that has that's grown to be a lot more diverse. And sometimes with that diversity comes some conflicts when it comes to ideological differences and race differences and all that. And just to see the kids, you know, from different demographics come up and say that they saw things differently after hearing the AN campaign's framework was just really rewarding because that's what we're in it for. And especially when it comes to young people who are really trying to deal with these issues in a faithful way to see them be helped through that conversation was huge for me. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and you can find me on Instagram at Justin E. Gibbony and, and anything that has anything to do with uh, the AND campaign. I'll be around. All right, Michael. My my daughter just turned 15 months. Her name is Searsha. And she's just started trying to say her name. And so every time we walk, every time we pass picture in our house that she's in, she'll point at it and say, Searsha. And I know that's not too too substantive, but that's what's bringing me joy these days. It's just a lot of fun having her in the house and she gives us a lot of joy. Michael, I think if you're raising a Searsha, you need to raise her with an Irish accent. Please tell that's me that it. you're doing that. That's uh, right. She, she she only eats Lucky Charms. That's the nice. only thing she's allowed to <laughs> she's allowed to eat. Yeah, it sounds like you. Yeah, you're doing the right thing then. And yeah, I, I enjoy right. following you on social, partly so that I can see pictures of Searsha. How can people follow you? Probably most active on on Twitter, and that's at Michael R. Ware, and on Instagram, I think at, at Michael Ware. I think my wife and I run. Uh, Substack uh, tries to curate news and analysis regarding politics, faith, culture, and you can follow that at reclaiminghope.substack.com. And then, of course, with the AND campaign, we have a book coming out this summer, Compassion and Conviction, the AND campaign's vision for political engagement. It's our framework for Christian political engagement. That, that book's coming out with InterVarsity Press in July of 2020. So uh, in time for, for the elections, for you and your small groups and your churches to be able to, to have something to help your communities think through politics. And, and we're really excited to get that out. Thank you guys for your work there. What is your precious moment, Morgan? I recently went to a conference called Someday is Here. It was a conference that was organized by Vivian Mabuni, who is an author and speaker and also community organizer. And so she specifically wanted to create a space for Asian American Christian women. And she hosted the inaugural conference a couple weeks ago. And it was just a really 
refreshing and wonderful time. There were a number of people who have written or contributed to Christianity Today over the years that I got to connect with and spend time with and catch up with. And also, I think this space was just a really important one for people to get to convene and to feel like, you know, the conference was held in Southern California where there are a number of Asian Americans, but there were multiple people who came in from out of state, including different speakers that we had. And I know that a lot of people just felt that it was very refreshing. It was also really nice to hear people just care about Christianity Today and be genuinely encouraged that we were there. So I was happy that I got to attend that and see everyone. Go ahead, Tim. You know, my precious moment did just return from this really mind-boggling trip where we were flying Yajasi Airlines or or Mission Aviators Fellowship, MAF airplanes, these really tiny prop airplanes to land on these 300-meter you know, mud or grass airstrips in the mountains of Papua, really some of the more remote places in the world. You know, having grown up on a steady diet of missionary movies from from the mission to at play in the fields of the Lord, a mosquito coast, it was always kind of my dream to go to one of those places and preferably to die there, like to die in the mission fields. That was kind of a romantic vision for this young Christian, what his uh, future life could be. I haven't had the, you know, the pleasure the, the honor of dying on the mission field yet, but it was great finally to uh, be in a, in a setting like that. And just to see these missionaries, you know, we met two missionaries who'd been there in separate villages for over 40 years. And one of them, he followed after a lot of these tribes are only one or two generations removed from cannibalism. His father was murdered in Eaton when he approached the Yali tribe. This this is actually covered in a book called Lords of the Earth by Don Richardson, I believe is the, the author. After his father was murdered, consumed, then he went in order to finish the work. And he's been there for over 40 years working, working still today amongst the villagers, doing translation work and, and missions work with different language groups there. So it was really amazing to be there and just see how God is working in some of the most far-flung places on the planet. Thanks for sharing that, Tim. People can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. I am at Tim Dalrymple underscore on Twitter. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself. I'm Matt Lindor. Budmia Shola does the transcripts. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, which is where we ask that you rate and review the show. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts, so feel free to Listen to it wherever is most convenient. If you want to support our ministry, you can go to morect.com slash podcasts. And that's a great way to also just let us know that you are appreciative of Quick to Listen as well. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.